0: Folks, if you will, bow with me. Let's pray once again. Father, as we come to this particular time in our service, God, I know that I stand behind this pulpit unworthy and unable for the task at hand. God, you are good. And your mercy endures forever. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be merciful. Father, that in the preaching and the proclamation of your holy word, that your mercy would go out Father, that in spite of a foolish servant, that you would speak. God, that from your word we would be encouraged, that we would be comforted, Father, but also that we would be challenged and that we would be convicted, all of us together. God, as humbly as we know how, we ask that you would add your richest blessing to the reading, to the teaching, to the proclamation of your holy word. We ask all these things in the precious name of the Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope that you do, I invite that you take it and turn with me to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. That's in the New Testament, in the four Gospels. You have Matthew, Mark, and then Luke, and you'll go to chapter 17. If you don't have a copy of Scripture with you this morning... Feel free to borrow one of, the, one of the Bibles in the pew backs in front of you. If you don't have a copy of Scripture at home, feel free to take that Bible with you as our gift to you. We've got more. We'll put more in the pews. You're welcome to take one home. You also are free to access the Scripture by your phone or tablet or by following along on the screens. However you may be accessing the Word of the Lord this morning, I would ask if you're physically able, would you please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's Holy Word, We look together now, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. We'll read the first ten verses, as is our tradition when we have finished and I have completed those ten verses. I will say this is the word of the Lord. I encourage you to respond by saying thanks be to God. Let's look together now at Luke, chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come. You must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith, like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, When he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. For the next several weeks leading up to Thanksgiving and leading up to the Christmas season, we are going to spend our time in Luke chapter 17. So this morning we're looking at the first ten verses of Luke chapter 17. There's an interesting nuance to each section of this chapter that ties in to the season of thankfulness and gratitude. And so, this particular morning, we're looking at these first 10 verses. All of these teachings of Jesus take place when Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, probably for the last time. It begins in chapter 14, and so he's walking and talking, and this is kind of a collection of sayings. Some of these things are happening in chronological order. Some of these things are things that Jesus may have said many times along the way to his disciples. Some of these passages, especially in the verses this morning, if you're well-versed with your Bible, might sound oddly familiar, but maybe you remember them from the book of Matthew. Many of these are duplicate teachings where we get one record of how Jesus said at one time in Matthew, and we'll get a different record of how he said at a different time in the gospel of Luke. So this is Dr. Luke's prescription of how Jesus spoke to us regarding discipleship. Now, I know it's it's not normally my style to have four specific points in a sermon, but Jesus very much is drawing out four aspects of being his disciple of being a follower of jesus and man guys sometimes we hit passages like this and they just punch me right in the teeth i I don't know about you guys but this verse has just wrecked me this series of verses this week has just burrowed its way into my soul and i've thought man what am i doing especially when we get into the latter verses down into verse 10 but it's, it's broken off into sections. The first section is verses 1 through 3. Maybe the first part of, of verse 3. It's a warning against leading others into sin. And folks, the, the Greek word that's used here is, is kind of... It's The word scandalon, alright, so there's your $3 Greek word if you just want to hang on to it. But what it's talking about is apostasy. It's talking about a scandal that leads someone not only to sin, but the type of repetitive sin that is known as apostasy, as giving up the faith, as walking away from the Lord. So if one of us who is a believer leads someone else away from the Lord, Lead someone else to doubt their faith or walk away from Christ. There are some very tough words for anyone who does that. It would be better for them to have a millstone hung around their neck and thrown into the sea. This is the ancient Near Eastern version of the mafia's concrete shoes. All right, they were not the ones to come up with sealing somebody's feet in concrete and throwing them in a river. All right, am I like y'all are looking at me like I am crazy? Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Like. This is yes, this is no, concrete shoes, right? You, that's how you, you know, you get rid of somebody. You know what I'm saying? we gotta get, we got to get rid of them. That's the best mafia i got, okay? All right, this is the original version of that. They would take a millstone, all right? Jesus is saying it would be better to take a millstone. That's the stone that grinds out the grain, all right? You have donkeys that are hitched to this millstone by a wooden, uh, uh, wooden beam that goes through the middle of it, and they have a yoke. And those donkeys are pulling that millstone, and that's the only way that the millstone can be pulled. It's huge. It's heavy. You're going to need a piece of heavy equipment to get that thing moved in modern day time. You're not going to have the tools to pull it off unless you've got like a bobcat or a caterpillar or something to move the thing, all right? You have to ask one of these people that use high pollutant machinery to know exactly what to use, all right? That's not my forte. I don't know about heavy-duty machines. But you need one. It's big. And Jesus is talking about it would be better if that millstone were tied around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. So death is a better option than the punishment for leading one astray. Folks, this ties specifically to teachers. And I have no idea what's going on with the lights. Can we just acknowledge that nobody has a clue what's going on with the lights? I'm going to walk over here, though, and I'm going to hit the button so y'all don't have to be in the dark because we got a button that will maybe work, all right? Boom. Ah. And the Lord said, let there be light. And the light shone round about them. And the glory of the Lord was amongst them. Alright. Here we go. We good? We're good. It would be better for somebody who is a false teacher, somebody who leads people away from the faith, it would be better for that person to die than to face the punishment that God has for them. It is a punishment worse than death. And don't miss that this ties directly to what James teaches us, that teachers are held to a higher standard, that teachers will be held accountable for the things that we teach. So teachers and preachers and disciple group leaders, those of us who are instructing in the word of the Lord, we will be held accountable for how we have taught and led people in the word of the Lord. Folks, listen, even by our lives, if you're not a teacher, if the way that we live draws somebody away from Christ and into sin, there is a punishment for us. God is displeased with us. We serve a God of grace and a God of mercy, but there are consequences to our actions. Don't ever forget that David, who was a man after God's own heart, after all that happens With him and Bathsheba, after all that happens in him sinning and running from God, committing adultery and conspiring to murder, all of the things that take place in David's life, he's able to find forgiveness from God, but there are still consequences that he faces for the rest of his life from his sin. And folks, I want us to be very vividly aware of the fact That when we lead other people into temptation, there are consequences that we will face. Men, if you are pursuing someone else's spouse, if you are looking at things online that we ought not to look at, if we are caught up in that, there are consequences to that sin. And then if because we are caught up in that sin, if we then make it flippant, when we're talking to other people, and as though it's not that big of a deal, and assist other men or other people in falling into that same sin, there will be consequences for us. Temptation to sin is a guarantee. Jesus says it will come along. But we are instructed as disciples of Christ not to be the cause of the temptation. Man, you, you know when the line is too far. Women, you know when the line is too far in how you're dressing or how you're flirting or how you're acting. Men, you know where the line is. And nine times out of ten, our thought is not how far can I be from that sin. Our thought is how close can I be to the line without going over. I'm not quite over just yet, okay? Here's the sin. If I fall off, I'm into the sin. I, think I, can, I can comfortably be this close. I can be, this will be alright. This will be just fine. I, I, look, I can even do a little dance right here. It's okay. I'm, I'm not falling into the sin. But now everybody else that's behind you, that sees you up on that line, they go, well, you know, I mean, Pastor got up at that line. Maybe I can get up at that line too. And they go, hey, look at here. Look, I can make, I can, up. Oh! And they fall into sin. Folks, what's wrong with us when we try to get as close to sin as possible without falling into it? Our reaction should be, sin, run! Jesus is telling us, He's telling His disciples, and through thousands of years, you and me, run from sin. Don't lead other people into sin. If you and I make a practice of leading other people into sin, it would be better for a millstone to be hung around our neck and us to be cast into the sea. Sin is a very serious deal. And we play with it like it's a plaything. That's never what Jesus teaches. Don't lead others into sin. Don't fall into sin yourself. Run from sin. Flee from the devil. Listen, these are the instructions. The first three verses He spends talking about warning against leading others into sin. But then the second one ties right along with it. It's instruction on forgiveness. It's instruction on forgiveness. Listen, sin is going to happen. So Jesus says, when it happens, be ready to forgive. Be eager to offer forgiveness. And you, you may remember, maybe you've heard this before. Maybe you haven't, but three times was an incredible number of times to forgive somebody in Jewish culture. It's, it's kind of like baseball. Maybe they knew preemptively what was coming from, with baseball. Three strikes and you're out. Okay, If you cross somebody once, And they were a very good Jew, they would forgive you. If you cross that same person a second time and they were truly pious, then they would forgive you a second time. That third time you cross them, if they are the most pious of pious, if they are the Paul of the Hebrews, all right, then they might forgive you a third time. This is where we're all supposed to go three times. Oh, Lord, they are blessed with forgiveness. That's the attitude to which Jesus is speaking. And he says, I don't care if they cross you seven times daily and then they repent seven times. Guess what? Forgive them seven times every single time. You may remember that in this account, when Jesus is talking about this, probably at another time with his disciples, he says that forgiveness should be offered. What? You you think seven times, my Lord? And Jesus says, oh, no, 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 no. How about 70 times seven times? He just. Throws a huge number out there because there's no limit to the forgiveness that we offer. We talked about this the other day as we were going through Philippians. Forgiveness is how people know us. And again, that doesn't eradicate all of the consequences that we face in life. One of my favorite analogies is if I were to walk up to Wesley and punch him square in the nose, all right? And I'm talking like I got a good shot off, okay? There's a possibility that his eyes will get black. There's a possibility that his nose will start pouring blood, might get on his shirt and stain his shirt. And I might go, Wesley, man, I was just trying to make an analogy. I didn't mean to, like, hit you upside the face. I'm so sorry, brother. Please forgive me. And he might go, dude, it's okay, man. It's all right. I'll forgive you. I've been offered forgiveness. I've been forgiven. But you know what? There's still blood coming out of his nose. His shirt is still stained with some blood. His eyes are still blacked up. There are physical consequences that we don't just get to wipe clean. Hey, you know, it's like that never happened. So I'm telling you, we are to be people of forgiveness. But we're not to be idiots. If you have a business partner that wrongs you and double crosses you and runs your business into the ground and makes you file for bankruptcy, and then they come and demonstrate genuine repentance to you and ask for your forgiveness... The Bible instructs us to forgive them. It doesn't say you've got to go back into business with them. You get what I'm saying? We're not, we're, we're, there's still consequences, all right? I forgive you, you've wronged me, and I still will have fellowship with you. I still will love you and treat you as a Christian friend and brother. Forgiveness has been extended, but we're not going to go into business anymore because I can't trust you as a business partner because those are the consequences of what your sin has done in tangible, practical reality. So, we are to be people of forgiveness, but don't forget that Jesus told us to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. We should always be people of forgiveness. The world will know us by how we forgive, the way that our Savior has forgiven us. But Jesus couldn't just offer forgiveness, right? He couldn't just say, You're pardoned. That's it. Your slate's clean. There's no problem. He had to die on a cross because there were consequences. To our sin. Romans 6 tells us the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. Jesus still had to die to purchase the forgiveness for us. There were still consequences. Don't miss that there are consequences. But let us be people of forgiveness. They will know us as Christ's by how we forgive. Especially when we are sinned against. Especially if someone sins against us. You personally. Look at verses 3 and 4. And and if he sins against you, if this sin is personally against you, rebuke him. Hey, don't forget to call a sin a sin. It's okay to admit to someone else, you have sinned. This is no longer what you ought to do. John chapter 8, Jesus tells the woman, you are forgiven. Go and sin no more. It's okay to call a sin a sin. Jesus is instructing His disciples to say there must be a rebuke that comes with sin so people will learn from it and learn to run from the sin and not fall into the temptation. Do you see how Jesus is building in His teaching? This is how you help people run from sin and not tempt them. You offer a loving rebuke. You speak the truth in love and say, this is a sin, but I do forgive you. Every time they come seeking repentance, every time they repent, offer them forgiveness. The third thing that Jesus gets into is an exhortation to have faith. One of the nuances of this passage in verse 5, the apostles say to the Lord. This is unique to Luke. They say to the Lord, God, increase our faith. They're asking for more faith. Jesus' response is that there's not an amount of faith that is required. It is the presence of faith that is required. Jesus doesn't respond and say, of course, you've asked for a wonderful thing. It's your lucky day. I'm giving away faith as a grand door prize. And you guys have the ticket. More faith. Open the door. It just cascades upon you. Jesus says, you know what? If you guys had faith as small as the most insignificant seed that we know right now, a mustard seed. You could uproot a mulberry tree and tell it to be planted in the ocean. And an island would form around it and it would float. All it takes is the fate of a mustard seed. You don't have to ask that God would increase your fate. Let us be people who ask God to give us faith. Help us have even the most infinitesimal amount of faith. This is not a rebuke that Jesus offers, but it's a shift of perspective. Don't walk through your life thinking, oh, if only I had more faith. If I just had a little bit more faith, I ain't even got a mustard seed size faith. That's I've told 17 mulberry trees to move. pastor and they ain't moved yet. I mean, Jesus, he, he, I, I, ain't, I ain't got enough. Don't walk around discouraged asking Jesus for more faith. Don't ask Him to increase your faith. Say, God, give me faith. Enough for today. This is what he's instructing his disciples and his followers. And then we hit verse 7. And folks, verse 7, Jesus gives an analogy of a servant. Well, any one of you who has a servant, the servant's out in the field. They're plowing and they're keeping the sheep, something like that. They come in and does the master say to the slave, to the servant, man, great job. Awesome job tending those sheep or plowing that field today. Come on to the dinner table. Let's mean you sit down and eat together. No. The servant comes in. The slave comes in after having worked hard in the field all day long. Plowing, keeping sheep, whatever the activity may be. The servant comes in and the master says, Now, get dinner ready and then I'm going to sit down and eat. And once I've finished eating, then you can eat. And there's no offer of thanks whatsoever. Verses 9 and 10, does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? If you're a slave in the ancient Near East, during this time you're told what to do, there's no expectation of back talk. There's no expectation that you might not do what was commanded. So there is no gratitude for doing what you were commanded. Folks, is anybody in this room an overthinker? Look, this is me. I'm just telling you right now, if I were to drop something on the ground and somebody else picked it up for me, I'd go, oh my gosh, thank you so much. Now I don't have to bend over. You know, my back's kind of been bothering me lately. That was the sweetest, most considerate thing that you could possibly do. Just thank you. Just know that there's gratitude in my heart from me to you. If I ask somebody to help me out and they help me out, I'm going to thank them over the moon, over and above. I'm an over-thanker. Is anybody else an over-thanker? You're just thankful to people all the time? It's okay to raise your hand in church. Look, woo, both of them. They up. All right, well, I'm the only one up here who thanks people. God bless you. Thank you, Ted. Ted, I needed somebody to raise their hand, and you raised your hand. Thank you. There's gratitude in my heart from me to you thank you. If you send me a thank you note, I'm going to send you a thank you note for thanking me about your thank you note because it's a, it's a circle of gratitude that we have. There's some more thanks going around. There's just, do you feel this? I feel, I feel the gratitude in the room. All right? Do you not feel strange if your boss tells you to do something, you do it, and then they don't say thank you? It's almost like, hey, what's up there, crawl today? You know what I mean? What's going on with our boss? something they're just they're just angry they're just in a bad mood they didn't thank me because I did exactly what I was supposed to do and what I'm paid to do folks it's very similar in our walk with Christ God owes us nothing absolutely nothing he never owes me or you a thank you we have breath and life by his grace and mercy. There is no reason for God to thank us for following Him as though He needs us. He wants us. And when we do what we are commanded of by the Father, when we live a life of running from temptation, when we live a life of forgiveness, when we live a life filled with faith, don't expect to stand before the Father and Him thank us for all the great work that we did. Even when he says that those who believe will stand before him at the gates and he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. That's not a thank you. That's a well done. Hey, I told you what to do and you did it. Well done. Come on in. Folks, you and I walk around with this chip on our shoulder like God owes us something like God ought to be thankful that I'm on his side because the hell that I could raise on the other side is nothing compared to what I'm doing for him now. And he better be glad that I picked the right side. Folks, God does not owe us a thank you. He's not lucky to have you and me on his team. We are blessed and fortunate that a God of infinite mercy saw us in the misery of sin and rebellion and made a way for us. We should be overflowing with gratitude to God. We should be willing to run into the sea, to run off of a cliff, to light ourselves on fire for the sake of this God who gave such an infinite merciful gift to us in the death, in the burial, in the resurrection of His Son. But you and I have the audacity to walk around entitled like God owes me and God owes you something for following Him when our response should be verse 10 every single time. So me, so Nathan also, when I have done all that I was commanded, I should say to God, I am an unworthy servant. I've only done what was my duty. You owe me nothing, Lord. I'm unworthy of everything. The fact that you let me wake up this morning was a blessing to me. The fact that that person, I forgave them. That was your spirit at work in me to provide forgiveness to them. God, You are good to me and You don't owe me anything, Lord. You don't have to say thanks. You don't have to say, well done. I'm nothing without You, Father. I'm unworthy. I only managed to do what was my duty this one time. And folks, I think we are easily tricked into thinking that God is lucky to have us. God is lucky that we're on His team. It's just not the case. You know, He could use the very rocks to praise Him if He wanted to. He doesn't need me to sing. He doesn't need you to sing. He gives us the opportunity to sing. The Lord doesn't need you to share the Gospel. He doesn't need me to share the Gospel. The very heavens and earth declare the glory of God. He could draw somebody to salvation without any one of us if He wanted to. But He lets us be involved. He lets us be followers and disciples. And so listen, as we go through this Thanksgiving season, where we are counting our blessings and thanking the Lord for all that He has done, don't be fooled into thinking that the Lord ought to be grateful for us. Because it's only by His mercy that we exist. It's only by His grace that we have life and breath and being. Let us always give thanks to the Lord. Let us be people of faith who are quick to forgive. Let us not lead others into temptation. But let us run from sin. And be grateful to God when He delivers us. When we stand before Him, Hey God, I ran away from that sin. Aren't you proud of me? They I do good. Stand before Him after you've run away from the sin and go, God, I'm an unworthy servant. I've only done what was my duty. You told me to run from sin. You told me to forgive. You told me to have faith. I'm an unworthy servant. I only did what I was commanded. This morning, can you count yourself as one of the servants of the Lord? Do you belong to Him? When we trust in Christ, we're giving ownership of ourselves over to Him. So do you own yourself? Or have you given ownership of yourself over to the Lord? Do you live for Him and serve Him as an unworthy servant? Do you seek to do as you and I have been commanded? This morning, I ask a simple question Where do you stand? How are you living up to these four characteristics of those who would follow after Christ? Let's pray. Lord, you are good. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for making a way for us when you weren't required to. God, please, cause us to be people who run from temptation. Lord, do not allow us to lead others into temptation by the way we live our lives. Father, please, help us to be people of forgiveness. Lord, cause us to be people who are quick to forgive and slow to anger. That we might mimic you and imitate you and be abounding in steadfast love. Lord, cause us to have faith. Lord, we're not asking for any kind of amount. We're just asking for faith. Lord, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. Lastly, Lord, thank you. You don't owe us a thank you. We owe you all the thanks and gratitude of a life well spent for you. Help us to live for you. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you and we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ.